Good morning. My name is Adri. Uh, just want to introduce myself. If you don't know me, I think I've met most of you before. Um, and tell you a little bit, well, you heard Jamie and Heidi are out of town. And so once in a while, a few times a year, I get the opportunity to share something with you. And I um, want to introduce myself a little bit to you. Um, besides being part of this wonderful church, I also work for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, which is a student ministry very similar to Navigators, Crew, Chi Alpha, if you're more familiar with those. And uh, for the last five years, I've been helping our study abroad ministry. And I always have to explain that a little bit more because sometimes I just wish I was a baker. I mean, that's, I think it's a beautiful profession. A baker is like, if I tell somebody I'm a baker, they have an idea of what I'm doing. When I tell them I do ministry with study abroad students, they're just like, how's that different from internationals? Like that makes, it all kind of like mixes up and there's a lot of context I need to explain. So I'll do this really quickly. What we do, this is a, for InterVarsity throughout the U.S., we've got hundreds of chapters, and there are students every year, about 600 of them, that want to go abroad. And we sit down with them, and we give them this vision of what would it look like if your study abroad was something more. It was an opportunity to be sent by God. And I want to give you an example of that. So here's a picture of our last launch in London for European students. We had two launches. One of them was in London. And uh, these students come together to set out there to think about the next four months or sometimes a year that they're abroad and to how to really live out their faith. And on the right side, you see my colleague Joshua, who is actually located in Europe. And then next to it, you see Billy and Eduardo. And those are two American students who are currently studying abroad in Lübeck, Germany. And so they came to London and they thought about their study abroad and they went back to their dorm and they said, we want to reach out to our dorm, we want to reach out to our class. And so they started uh, inviting students to come to a small group. They had absolutely, I was talking to Eduardo, he said he didn't expect anybody to come and he was surprised. He had a whole room full of people with people, some of them were US students, some of them were European and some were from the Middle East. And so they just had had two or three Bible studies now. And um, that all happens because we just help them think a little bit deeper about what could it look like to live out your faith as you go abroad. And uh, we're just excited to see what kind of kingdom fruit will come from these kind of decisions. Now, launch is something that we've been doing for five years. And four years ago, I went to one. We do this in all kind of cool, exotic places, right? Um, I went to Paris, and we did one with students there. And one of the psalms that we use is Psalm 84. That's the psalm we're going to talk about today. Um, and for me, it was a really kind of a turning point because it was a realization that I could be present with God wherever I was. What we did for about an hour that afternoon, we gave all the students Psalm 84. We read it. They said, well, take, take one verse and repeat that. Like you can, maybe you're familiar with a breath prayer. You can walk and you can repeat that one verse you have chosen as a way to, to continue to be present to God. And so the, the exercise was walk through downtown Paris with all its craziness, lots of traffic, lots of tourists, but in the midst of that, practice being present to God. And so as I walked for about an hour, we kind of spread out, we, we kind of saw each other from a distance, but we were kind of walking by ourselves. I realized I could be present to God even in the chaos of life. And so that's what we want to jump in and as we look at Psalm uh, 84. And let me, well, we'll read it. The first part that's not on, as, as, as the psalm gets on the screen, the first part that's not on there, there's actually, before verse 1, there's a little introduction. And 
uh, it's interesting because in the, I'm from the Netherlands. In the Dutch Bible, that is verse 1. And so what you see here on the screen is actually verse 2. It's very confusing when you're trying to do like, what does it say in, in my Bible in this other version, right? And it's a complete, like it's all off by one verse. And that's interesting because the psalm originally, like 3,000 years ago when it was created, didn't have that introduction. But 2,400 years ago, when it was all collected into the book of Psalms, and 150 of them were chosen and were bundled together, these, these people looked at that and put these particular titles over them. And so they are very much part of the Bible, but they're also not the original part of, of the psalm. So it's kind of an interesting place, and that's why it's not up there. But I want to read it anyway. So it starts out with, For the director of music, according to the Githith, which we don't know actually what that is, that's why we keep it untranslated, um, of the sons of Korah, a psalm. So we know this is attributed to the sons of Korah. Let's read it. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may have her young, a place near your altar. Lord Almighty, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Blessed are those whose strength is in you whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. Hear my prayer, Lord God Almighty. Listen to me, God of Jacob. Look on our shield, O God. Look with favor on your anointed one. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. Lord Almighty, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Well, Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your words. We thank you for this ancient poem written by somebody who longs to be with you. And um, Lord, I pray that as we dive into this, that we can learn something from your word. We believe your word to be living. So Lord, we pray that you will do a work in us. In Jesus' name, amen. So what I want to do, kind of a little set out of, of the next 20 minutes or so, talk a little bit more about presence. Then you might have noticed the psalmist talks about longing, so we'll talk a little bit about longing. Pilgrimage, there's another word in there that I would like to take a few moments, and then we'll have an invitation. So this psalm written 3,000 years ago, in those 3,000 years, our pace of life has changed, right? Uh, we even talk about it, like I'm, I'm a little over 40, and in my life, I already seen that the pace of life has changed. We talk a lot about how our mobile devices, like always being on, uh, has changed. Like we feel like everything goes more rapid. Uh, a lot of that, of course, even has changed more in over 3,000 years. But I think as I look around, I see there's a longing in people for presence. Not necessarily presence for God. I think there is a deep longing in each of us for the presence of God, but just to be present, period. Like, we're so connected, we're so busy with everything. Those moments when we can actually be present to the moment are, uh, are something, I think, a lot of, that I see in our society that we're longing for. 
One of the ways I want to exemplify that is um, my daughter, Deborah, who was earlier on here uh, playing violin. She just celebrated her 17th birthday um, a few weeks ago, and she really wanted a record player. Now, um, when she said that the first time, like about a year ago, I was like, a record player, that seems like a lot of effort, a lot of money. Uh, definitely, if you want to get one that's a little better than the standard ones that you buy at Walmart, I don't know if we should do this. But she kept bringing it up, and honestly, my kids generally don't ask for stuff for their birthday anyway. It's often really hard, like, what would they like for their birthday? And I'm just standing there in the aisle trying to figure out, like, what, what should I pick? So she really wanted this, so it's like, okay, let's do it. So we got a record player, and we got some records. And uh, I have actually been enjoying it way more than I expected. Like, we're both using it. And one thing I've realized about records is that records demand presence. If you have Spotify, you just click the button, you have your earbuds in, you hear music, right? Like, you step in your car, it might start playing automatically. Maybe you have one of those smart speakers in your home and you're just walking around and the music follows you. You don't have to pay any attention to it. It will just go to the next song automatically. And even though music is on, you're not present to it. But a record, well, mo yeah, you, you kind of demands, like I said, it demands presence. You have to buy one first. Right? Like on Spotify, you can just click whatever you want. You have to buy one first. You could go online, but it's a lot more fun to find one physically, go to a sh shop, go through it for maybe an hour, just looking like what albums you find interesting, maybe listen to them there, take them home. And then, yeah, if you buy a second one, secondhand one, you have to clean them. So that's a little work. And then finally, when you get it ready to put it on your record player, you have about 20 minutes of music. <laughs> and then you have to turn it around. And so it almost feels like you're tending a fire. You need to be there. You can't just run away. And um, I, I, by accident, when we, <laughs> we went to Enterprise Oregon this weekend, um, I was listening to some music. I thought I turned it off, and I didn't. And when we got home, it was still spinning. <laughs> it's like, you don't have that problem with Spotify, right? Like, it, may, it might still run, but it doesn't bother, you, bother me. But that's, it shows that you have to pay attention to the device. I, I thought of another one that I've seen. Some of my friends have gotten into film photography. And we now all have pho like pho photo cameras on our phones, and we see something, we pull it out, and we take a picture. Research has actually shown that that way of taking pictures makes us less present to the moment than if we hadn't taken the picture at all. Because we use our phones to outsource our memory. So if I want to remember that next Monday I need to be at church for this Costa Rica uh, meeting, I put it in my phone and I forget about it until my phone shows up in a notification or other notes that I put in my phone. Similarly, the moment I pull out my phone and I take a picture, I outsource my memory to the phone. I'm actually becoming less present to it. But film photography, again, demands presence. You only got maybe 24, maybe 36 pictures on it. It costs you money. You make sure that each picture counts. And so when you get out there, and you, you, you might have to measure the light. You might have to figure out if all the settings on your camera are correct. And you want to make sure you get the right perspective, because you really only get a few chances to get it right. And so I think that's why a lot of people in our society have gotten into these kind of hobbies. And maybe, maybe you can think of other hobbies. Uh, I'm a little bit more of a techie, so I think of tech examples. But I'm sure there's other examples that show that people desire this kind of presence. Within university, we do. Uh, something called MarCamp. Um, around the nation, our different regions, once a year, invite students to come to a full week Bible study. You think, well, any student come to that, right? That sounds like the most boring invitation ever. 
And normally when, when a region starts doing that, that's the problem. Like few students say yes. But the students that go love it because we call it Mark Camp. And you go through the book of Mark together in community doing Bible study. And the students that come out of that week normally tell all their friends, you need to go next year. This is amazing. This is an amazing experience. Now, I have a colleague down in Arizona who took some students to, like, their, their region always goes to Catalina Island, which is just off the coast of L.A. And um, they, they go to, a, to, to um, um, what's the right word? Cabin isn't the right word. A, um, well, facility where they stay that's out of cell phone reach. And for a lot of students, this is like a bit of a scary uh, experience. I'm not quite sure if they tell them before they arrive. So it might be a little jarring, like my phone doesn't work. And there might be legitimate reasons, right, to use your phone. But they are cut off mostly from using their phone for a week. And even though they don't like it generally when they start, they invariably point it out as one of the highlights of their experience there. Because as they aren't able to use their phones, they realize they're more present to the people around them, they're more present to the word as they study it, they're more present to God, they're more present to the place that they're in. And again, even though these students generally don't notice that they desire this kind of presence, when they finally get the opportunity to, they, they, they notice that that is something they're actually longing for. <laughs> so that's a good transition to the longing of the psalmist. So let's look just at a few verses again at the beginning of uh, the psalm. It says, how lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. You see here language of longing that is almost physical. Yearns, but even faints, right? Like almost faint. That This is how deeply the psalmist desires to be with God. My heart and my flesh cry out. There's this deep desire. And then it continues, even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may have her young, a place near your altar. Lord Almighty, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Almost sounds like the psalmist is having a case of jealousy. He looks at the, at the birds here in the temple, birds that are in this society fairly insignificant. Even Jesus says, uh, I think in Matthew 10, are not too uh, sparrows sold for a penny. So in this society, birds aren't worth all that much, but they are somehow able to be in the presence of God 24-7, and the psalmist cannot. So who, who is the psalmist? Well, I just mentioned that at the top of the psalm, it says the sons of Korah. And the sons of Korah are Levites. Now, Levi, the tribe of Levites is one of the 12 tribes in Israel but they're special in the sense they don't actually own any land. They, they live across the other 11 tribes, and they have temple duty. Now, a specific group of these Levites are descendants of Aaron, which you might remember from the Exodus, Moses' brother in the desert, and Aaron and his sons are set aside to do temple duty, and they're the priests. But the other Levites also go to the temple, have temple duty a couple times a year. Normally two times a year they have temple duty, and then during big festivals. And so most of the years, they might be off 100 miles from the temple, but then a few times a year they're able, able to serve, they're able to serve at the temple. And um, you can imagine that they, that, that this, this psalmist is looking at the birds saying 24-7 they can be in the temple, and I can only be there, what, two, three, maybe four weeks out of the year? And then it says in verse 10, 
Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere, which you just sang. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tent of the wicked. So what is a doorkeeper? I think it will be helpful to see my little uh, diagram of the temple. So let me take a sip quick. I went online to find a good layout of the temple, and I found out that people don't seem to agree exactly what it looked like, so I made my own. <laughs> I'm not saying it's better, I just thought it was clear. Um, so here you see the, and I hope I'm not standing in anybody's way, maybe we'll say this aside a little bit, um, what the temple would have looked like. This is the first temple um, that was built by Solomon. And let's start at the, in, at the center of it. So there's this really small green box in the middle, and that's the Holy of Holies. This would be where God's presence would be. This is also the place that only one person, once a year, was allowed to go in there. The high priest would be allowed to go into that Holy of Holies, and other than that, would be off limits. Then you've got the temple building. And the temple building would be that place where priests were still, like, more than one priest was allowed to go. The priests, the descendants of Aaron, were allowed to go there and do temple duty. Only during their temple duty were they allowed in, and then they would go out. Then you would have the priest court, where also only accessible to the priests, and they would do sacrifices there and offerings. And then you get a little further out, and that's Israelites' court. And that is where all Jewish men were allowed to go. So the Jewish men were allowed to go a little less close to the holy presence of God than the priests. And then you get to women's court, which seems a little unfair because that's where both the men and the women were allowed to go. Uh, but again, you see they're a little further away from God's presence, and then that's what happens kind of in the inner court. And then if you look at the outer court, also called the Gentiles court, this is where non-Jews were allowed to go. And so they'd be furthest away from the presence of God. And a doorkeeper, well, you see my little gates that I made. I'm not actually sure if that is the right amount. There might have been more, but that's kind of what I saw in some of the pictures. Here there's five gates. Um, a doorkeeper would be standing in or in front of the door of the temple. So they would barely be in the temple. And so here the psalmist is saying, it is better to be on the edge of the presence of God than, and it says literally, the, to be in the tent of the wicked. Now, the tent of the wicked is, is, of course, a poetic. This is a poem. It's poetic language. I think another way of saying it, it is better to be in the edge of the presence of God than to be in a comfortable home, but far away from God. Right? Again, underlying, underlining the, um, the longing of being in God's presence, how much better it is than anything else. So, as you read this psalm, this psalm would be, a lot of psalms were sung probably would something be something on the mind of the Levite as he was doing his chores uh, outside the temple during the year, right? Like those 48 other weeks out of the year, he might be thinking of this as, as a, and long to be in the temple. And then he would sing it while he would be walking towards Jerusalem, which might be multiple days. And he, he has his eyes on Jerusalem, on the temple, on God's holy presence. And then he would sing this also when he is in the temple. So you might wonder, well, how is this relevant for us? Um, a lot has happened in 3,000 years. There is currently no functioning temple in Jerusalem to go to. Both of the temples have been destroyed. I mean, both as in one was rebuilt and destroyed again. But some bigger things have happened as well. God became human. God incarnate, God in the flesh. It says in John 1.14 that 
God dwelled among us. He made his house among us. Very similar language to the psalm, right? God dwelling in, in the temple, God's dwelling place. Now God walks among us and he dwelt among us. And in the next two, he gives us the spirit, his Holy Spirit, that dwells in us, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And this is both a communal indwelling, as in, our, in the church, and an individual one. And so it's, it's really cool to see, first, God is in this one, well, of course, God is everywhere, right? But like the presence of God, the holy presence of God is seen as being in the temple, and people have to go to be in the presence of God. Then God comes down, and his presence is among us, and he walks among us, and now God's presence is in us. And so if you look back at the psalm, we're a little bit more like the birds. We got access to God's presence 24-7. The psalmist would have been a little jealous of our position. But at the same time, I ask myself the question, do I long for God's presence in the same way that the psalmist does? And if I'm honest, there's many moments that I don't, that I go through the motions and I, I, I come to church and I, I don't feel that desire or like not as strongly as I would like to. And last year I went on sabbatical, um, which is a great thing that, that I was allowed to do with the ministry setting. And one of the things I tried to do is every morning spend some time with God as I walked. I love walking, and this was a great way to connect with God. One thing I realized as I spent time with God, there came a point that I started longing to spend more time with God. So it's a little counterintuitive, right? There's first a decision to want to be present to God, and then when I started doing that, I started noticing a longing inside of me to wanting to be closer to God. So that's just, I guess, an invitation to practice being present. There's this other word called, named pilgrimage in our, uh, in our verses as well, starting in verse 5. It says, Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength, until each appears before God in Zion. So imagine again a Levite who is at home and his, his time has come to go and do his temple duty. His time has come to go to the temple, to be in the presence of God. And he's, he yearns for this, right? He wants to be there. And so he sets out and he goes on a journey. And as he walks on this journey, which might be multiple days, he finds the trip to be difficult. There is this valley of Baca. Now, there's a lot of disagreement about what that actually means. It might have been an actual place, an actual valley that's very arid. There's much growing there. It might have been that the word Baca is very close to another word in, uh, in, 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 um, in, I want to say Aramaic or Hebrew, in Hebrew that it's very similar that it might mean weeping. So valley of weeping could be another potential translation. Uh, neither of these are certain, but what we know is that this is not an easy valley to walk through. But he goes, he keeps his eyes focused on God's presence, and as he goes, he finds that he is strengthened. And he makes it all the way to God's presence and to be there in the temple. So that's a more literal interpretation of the, 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 the poem or the psalm. I think, too, it is a metaphor 
for life. That first sentence could be seen as a question. When it says, blessed are those whose strength is in you, the question pops up, well, what is your strength in? What are the alternative strengths that people lean on? Finances, maybe? Family? Your smarts, your intelligence? Or God? Because this psalm says, when you lean on God, He strengthens you. And then when you walk through that valley, I think that valley is a metaphor for life. Life can be arid. Life can be a place of weeping. Life can be hard. But as you keep your eyes focused on God's presence, on God, God will strengthen you. And your faith somehow will touch the place around you. As you see, it becomes a place of, 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 of water. It becomes a fertile place until you arrive in God's presence eternally. Now, as I read this, I had one question. And I was like, how does a pilgrim make a valley a place of springs? Because that's definitely what it seems to say. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also covers the pool. So how does that happen? Of course, I always consult some other people, but I couldn't really find a good answer. So this is my best shot at this, right? I think this is connected to a larger gospel story. Very, very quickly. God created everything for good, right? Genesis 1 and 2, he created everything, and he saw that everything was good. But then the world was broken by evil, Genesis 3 and beyond. We see evil enters the world. And so God sends his son, Jesus Christ, to walk with us, to dwell with us, and then he dies on a cross in order to save us. But that is not where the gospel story ends. Because then there is an invitation to be part of God's healing work in the world, to be his hands and feet. And so there is this invitation to, when we focus on God, that it isn't just me and God, but every, the way that I live out my life influences somehow the place around me as well. Following God is not a passive yes, but it's an invitation to follow and be part of God's work. And as we do that, as we make decisions in light of following God, the valley around us, the valley of Baca, becomes a little more fertile. We're influencing people. We're, we're having our, our choices have overall a positive impact on the world around us. So let me give you an example. This is just a student that I met uh, a couple months ago. So I have a, sto- uh, a, a slide for that one as well. Um, this summer, I had the opportunity to go to IFE's World Assembly. So I need to give you a little bit of background here. What is this? InterVarsity is one of 160 plus members of a worldwide group called IFE's, International Fellowship of Evangelical Students. It's a whole mouthful. And so there's InterVarsity type ministries around the world, over 160 of them. And um, once every four years, like some staff get elected to come together and to set out a vision for the next four years, how we're going to do things together as a worldwide movement. But we also bring a student delegation from each country. And so my colleague, Queenie, who is the one who is holding the Prakantas sign, Prakantas is the university in Indonesia, um, uh, together we led this group of seven students to come to Indonesia. And um, that is by itself uh, just I could tell you lots of stories about this. Uh, it was a really good time. 
But the one story I want to share is one of the students is an engineering student, and um, he was very conflicted because he's doing this degree, he likes engineering, he, uh, he got an internship that actually the work he does he really enjoys, enjoys the people, they've offered him a job, and he can earn a lot of money. So this all sounds great, right? Except that he is working for a company that creates military-grade rockets. And he's wondering, like, is this, if I keep my eyes focused on God, is this the best decision of what I can do with my life? Should I be part of developing something that potentially can destroy people's lives? I'm just sharing his story, right? That's what he told me. And he said, like, I, I feel following God should look differently. And so we talked about that. And um, one of the things he's now pursuing is saying, well, maybe I need to do my grad studies, but do it overseas in an international setting, and I can be part of some local ministry and help out there. Now, I'm not saying that everybody has to go in ministry, but don't hear me say that, that that's the better option. But I think... As he is trying to figure out how to follow God, he realizes that the choices in his life aren't, can be selfish anymore. All, of the, all the things he was thinking about in his job, like money is fine, like having good colleagues is good, all those kind of things are, are fine things. But for him, it became a question between, do I choose that versus following God? And I think as we are walking through the valley and we keep our eyes focused on God, we will be confronted with these kind of questions, and as we keep our eyes on God, we'll make decisions that are different than people who don't follow God. And I think they will lead to the kingdom of God being present in and around us, and it will impact other people as well. Well, I'm, I'm almost getting to the end of this. There was one quick note I wanted to make, because you might wonder when you read this psalm, there's this interesting couple of verses in there. You're like, what is it doing there? I haven't actually quite figured out why, it, why it's there. But let me read it. It is in 8 and 9. It says, Hear my prayer, Lord God Almighty. Listen to me, God of Jacob. So this is kind of this intersection of like a quick prayer that's being thrown in the middle of this psalm. Look on our shield, O God. Look with favor on your anointed one. And you might wonder like, well, who is this, right? Well, in this particular context at this time, the shield would be another word for protector, Anointed one, you might think of the king, like David was anointed. And so he's asking God's, like, to, he's asking God to look on the king. And that's just put in there in the middle. Not 100% certain why it's there. I mean, both the king and the temple are, of course, in Jerusalem. And asking for protection for your king, I think, is a good thing. To pray for our leaders is a good thing. Um, so that's just interjected there. And I thought I'd just throw it out there in case you wondered. So the invitation. In this text, if you look um, through it, you notice there's three times the word blessing or blessed being mentioned. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. And the last one is blessed is the one who trusts in you. And I think we can rephrase those into invitations. One is the invitation to be present and to be in relationship with the living God. And this is actually a possibility, right? Like not like in, in the Old Testament, it was really hard. You had to go to this particular place. But now we have access to the Holy Spirit 24-7. There's the invitation to lean and focus on God every day. 
And there's the invitation to trust in God. And I think that's one that you see through all the Psalms. There's this over and over, there's that moment, like that, that, that phrase, trust in God. And I think it's often the hardest thing to do. At least in my life, I found out that when things get hard, it's hard to trust in God. Maybe that's why it's repeated over and over in the Psalms. So I would like to invite you to think about the following thing for a minute or so. Just my question to end on. How can you choose to be present this week to God, to people, and to God's creation? So just take a minute thinking that. I just want to uh, say those last or those first eight verses as a blessing over you, and then we'll sing the doxology. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may have her young, a place near your altar. Lord Almighty, my King and my God, Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Why don't you stand and we'll sing the doxology together as we go out and uh, think about how we can be present this week. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Thank you all. Have a good Sunday.